We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Would you join me again in taking your Bibles and open them to the book of Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 through 6 as we continue our journey together through this incredible Bible book. We're looking at the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and walking through the book of Colossians together. But before we get started, could y'all just give it up for our children's choir? Wasn't that incredible? Yeah. I got corrected years ago, and I've never forgotten it because they're exactly right. People always talk about our young people, children and youth, and they talk about them being the future of the church. They're not the future of the church. They are the church. They are the church. And so I'm thankful to be led in worship. I'm thankful to be brought to the throne of grace. Thankful today to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ. I think the body of Christ ought to look like all ages of people, children and senior adults, all coming together recognizing that we all have one voice, and it's a voice that is called on to glorify the name of the risen Savior, the glorious Lord, the one whose name is Jesus. And that's one of the reasons to walk through the book of Colossians has been such a magnificent journey together, because it magnifies the person of Christ. It focuses on the supremacy of Christ. And you'll remember for the first couple of chapters as we walk through Colossians, we focused on the doctrinal and deep theological issues that were brought about. And then we made a transition and we've seen how doctrine and theology really fleshes out in our everyday lives. Practically, how does our faith affect us? And Paul's helped us to see that as we've been journeying through it over the past several weeks. And so today, um, we're going to talk specifically about what holy communication looks like. Um, some of you may have, have seen the article on this. I found it incredibly fascinating but there's a group of birds in southern Turkey. Um, they're actually cranes in southern Turkey, and they are specific to that region of Turkey. But one of the things that's fascinating about them is that over the years, they develop not only in their ability to fly, but they cackle when they fly, and they struggle to fly without cackling. So if they're in the air, they are constantly making this cackle, constantly making this noise. Well, what took place over the years is in southern Turkey, there's also eagles. And the eagles began to understand that every time they heard the cackle of the crane, that there was a buffet that was now available to them. So every time they heard the cackle of the cranes, the eagles would rise above the level of the cranes and as the cranes would start to cackle, the eagles would swoop down and they began to decimate this crane population to the point that people wondered if this group of cranes was going to go extinct. But they developed a behavior that no one could have predicted or thought about. The older cranes not only began to do this, but began to show the younger cranes what to do to keep from cackling, to keep from making the noise, to keep from becoming an eagle Sunday buffet. And so what they would do is, before they took off, they would go down by a riverbank and pick up stones large enough to fill their mouths so that when they took off, even though they would still try to cackle, 
the sound couldn't come out of their mouths and they would not spit out the stones until they reached where they were going because the rocks inherently kept them from being able to cackle and inherently kept them from being able to get eaten. And I thought about that as I was reading it and I thought, how many times in my life would I have been better off to stick a bunch of rocks in my mouth before I ever left the house? How many of you have your mouths ever gotten you in trouble? How many of you have proverbially stuck your foot in your mouth over the years? How many of you have said something recently and you had this thought, I wish I could just go back and, and take that back. I wish I could just, I wish I hadn't have said that. How, how many of you slip sometimes and you just say something and you think, man, that probably wasn't what was needed. I probably could have avoided that. Sometimes, you know, we have that trouble, you know, my mother used to remind me all the time that I had let my alligator mouth overrun my hummingbird behind. Um, and so learning that and learning how practically that God wants to govern our speech is so important. As we talked about over the past week, we saw that God wanted us to have holy families. He wanted us to have holy marriages and he wanted us to have holy parent-child relationships. And last week, what we saw in Colossians is that God wants you to have a holy work life, whether it is that you're an employer, an employee. And so today what we see is that God also wants us to have holy communication or holy conversations. And so the big idea that's going to drive us today is that our prayer life and our conversations matter to God. That's the big idea. Simple. Our prayer life and our conversations matter to God. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read this text together. And we're going to talk about that this morning, how our prayer life matters to God and how our conversations matter to God. So let's discover that as we stand and give honor to the word of God. Colossians chapter four, we'll begin reading in verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Lord, teach us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Teach us that our prayer life matters to you that our conversations matter to you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, please be seated. So when we jump right in in verse 2, what does it tell us to do? It tells us to devote ourselves to what, church? Prayer. Any of you struggle with prayer? I've told you before, it's a constant effort it's a constant challenge i don't know anybody that walks with the lord that would raise their hand and say i've got prayer mastered i'm the absolute expert on prayer but we know that the bible commands it over and over and over again and this word that you see here devote it that word means that there's a persistence to it that you keep on keeping on that you keep trying that you keep praying that you never give that up and so as we talk about our prayer life, I want to talk about specifically what it's going to look like for us in a practical way to devote ourselves to prayer. Because in this particular instance, 
Paul is asking them not to quit praying, and then he immediately gives a prayer request in verse 3. And don't forget why you're praying, pray for me. I become bold asking people to pray for me. I, I, I truly believe that I would not be where I am if it hadn't been for people praying for me. I truly believe that our church would not be where it is if there hadn't been people praying for this church. And many of you are walking, talking, shining examples that somebody prayed for you. Somebody lifted you up and called your name out loud to the Lord. Somebody interceded for you when the chips were down. Somebody prayed for you when you were sick. Somebody lifted you up when you were lost. Somebody thought enough about you to pray for you, and we believe on the authority of the Word of God that there is power in prayer. We believe, as James says, that the prayer of the righteous man availeth much. We believe that prayer is an opportunity for us because the curtain is torn between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, and now, because of the blood of Jesus and His sacrifice, that you have access to God in an uninhibited way, and you ought to use it, that we ought to devote ourselves to prayer. Now, we challenge ourselves all the time not to give up the daily habit of prayer, meaning, as part of a devotion, a time where you bow your head before the Lord. I, I believe that the best time to do that is in the morning. I heard someone say a long, long time ago that when you're preparing for spiritual warfare, you don't put on your battle armor at night. You put your battle armor on in the morning. So I think it's great. There ought to be a prayer time in the morning. But there also ought to be a time at night where before you go to sleep that you recognize that the only reason you made it through the day was because of the glorious grace of Jesus. And you thank Him for that. So we need specific times in prayer. But when Paul is calling them to, to this, he's calling not only to those specific times of prayer, but he's calling them also to, to be able to have a God consciousness in their mind where they are relating every experience in their life to the Lord, that they are ordering their mind to be in prayer amidst all the activities of life. There have probably been a lot of you who have experienced this. You, you pray in the morning, you, you ask the Lord for help, you thank Him, you pray for your family, hopefully you pray for your church, uh, please pray for your pastor, and you list all of these things and you pray for them. But how many of you have been throughout the day at times and recognized that you have not had maybe a second thought about reaching out to God throughout the day? And those that truly walk with the Lord are understanding that prayer is not just about a specific devotional time, but prayer is about a conversation in which you are interacting with God throughout the day. I heard someone challenge this years ago in talking about prayer, and this is hard for me to do because every point of my life, I was taught to pray just like you were. Um, I, I was taught, now I lay me down to sleep. I was taught when I was little, that what's the blessing we all know? Right. And how do you end every one of those prayers? I mean, this is an easy one. If, you're, if you hadn't had all your coffee, you can still get this one. What is the word you use to end all of those prayers? Amen. I want you to try something tomorrow that you've probably never tried. When you pray in the morning, I don't want you to say amen at the end. There's nothing wrong with saying amen. Just listen to me for just a moment. I want you to treat that prayer like it's not going to stop. And if we don't say amen, we leave ourselves open to recognizing all day, I never finished that prayer this morning because you shouldn't have finished the prayer. 
The prayer ought to continue on because we're looking at it more as a conversation that we are starting a conversation or allowing God to start a conversation with us that continues on. Persistence in prayer is taught all throughout Scripture. In fact, Jesus teaches it in some pretty interesting ways. In Luke 18, he talks about a widow who, who goes to an unjust judge and demands justice over and over and over again. And finally, the judge gives her justice, not because he wants to do the right thing, he's tired of hearing from her. Or about the man. You also remember the story that we find in Luke 15 or in Luke 11, where this man goes to his neighbor's house and beats on the door and he asks for bread. And the guy says, I've already gone to bed. Like, go on. I'm not getting up and getting you bread right now. But the man won't quit pounding on the door till eventually the man gets up and gives him the bread. And the point is not that God is a reluctant giver. The point is not that God is an unjust judge. The point is, if an unjust judge will give a widow justice because she keeps on asking, and if a man will get out of bed and give a loaf of bread just to keep somebody from pounding at their door, then how much more will a good, good father take care of his children if they are persistent in prayer? But we're told also, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to do what? Pray without ceasing. Or some of your translations may say pray continually. So we're told that there's two aspects of prayer. And sometimes I think this is the hard part. We're told to pray boldly, and we're told to pray persistently, but we're also told to pray patiently. And sometimes those two things can't reconcile in our mind. That I need to be bold before the Lord and persistent before the Lord, but I also need to be patient in waiting on the Lord. You see, because... Paul gives a, a very clear example, very clear instruction of how we devote ourselves to prayer. He says there are two words that need to characterize, I'm in verse 2, two words that ought to characterize your prayer life. What are those two words? You ought to be what? Watchful or alert and thankful. Now, it's amazing how much Paul thought gratitude was important. This is the fifth time he's brought up thankfulness or gratitude just in this book. But he also says that we are to be watchful. What does he mean by being watchful? This is the same word that Jesus used to Peter when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He said, you need to keep watch. You need to stay awake. That's what the word literally means. You need to stay awake. But most of us, and, and this happened this morning, a lot of you are snooze button people, right? You love that snooze. How many of you set your alarm earlier than you need to get up just so you can hit that snooze a few times? Amen? Oh, amen. Amen. But the problem is, even after some of us get up and we're living our day, we're still hitting the snooze. We're just kind of going through the day and we're not paying attention to what's going on around us. And the call here, watchful in prayer, how does that go together? It means you ought to be looking for things to pray for. You ought to be looking for things in your life that alert you to needs and things that you are to pray for. So we look for those things. We're thankful. And then Paul says in verse 3, and pray for me for open doors to the gospel which means that not only does our prayer life matter to God, but now Paul opens up how our conversations matter to God. So our prayer life matters to God, and our conversations matter to God. 
Certainly the conversations that we have with God, that's prayer, but the conversations that we have with other people as well. So Paul has requested prayer that when he talks to people, that there would be opportunities that would open up so that he could share the message. Now, let's talk about Paul for just a moment. Y'all remember where he is at this moment? Where's Paul when he writes Colossians? He's in jail. How'd he get there? The book of Acts says that he took three different missionary journeys. The book of Acts says that on his third missionary journey, what we know is that he was falsely accused and arrested. He was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple area on false accusations. So he was arrested. He was then sent to Felix, left in jail for so long that eventually Paul appealed to Caesar. So when he appealed to Caesar, they put him on a boat. And you remember what happened on the boat? Shipwrecked. After he was shipwrecked, the Lord saved his life, and he eventually found himself in Rome. And what most scholars believe is that he died in prison there because the book of Acts ends with Paul still in prison in Rome. But while Paul was in prison in Rome, he got some stuff done. You've heard the prison epistles. You've heard of those. Colossians is one of those. Ephesians is one of those. Philippians is one of those. Philemon is one of those. And they were all written while Paul was in under this arrest while he was there in Rome. Yet his biggest request while he's in prison, and this is an, an indictment. This, this, is, this has bothered me for the past two weeks studying to preach this message. If I was writing back to you and I was in prison and I sent a letter and I said, hey, Bradley, next Sunday, would you please read this letter to the church? What would be my primary prayer request to you? Pray that I get out of jail. That would be my request. I want to get out of here. I don't like it here. I don't like jail. That sounds terrible. My primary request would be, I want to get back to y'all. I want to get back to my family. What is Paul's main request? Don't pray that I get out. Pray that I'm faithful. Pray that opportunities open up. And open up they did. And this is the type of compulsion that he has to share the gospel and where he wants his prayer life centered. But he prays not only that he would be able to share the gospel, but he prays verse 4, and what a powerful prayer. You, you ought to pray this for your Sunday school teachers. You ought to pray this for your pastor. You ought to pray this for the staff at our church. You ought to pray this for your friends. You ought to pray this over yourself. That he would communicate the gospel how? Clearly. Clearly. The gospel is worth communicating clearly. People need to understand clearly who Jesus is. They need to understand clearly what it means to be saved. They need to understand clearly what heaven is and what hell is and what sin is and what justification is and what redemption is and what the power of the cross is and the power of the resurrection. They need to understand what it means to be sanctified and eventually what it will mean to be glorified. They need to hear clearly. So if someone like the Apostle Paul who was called of God on the Damascus road and given apostleship by Jesus, if he wants help to communicate the gospel clearly, we ought to be praying that all the time. Because we live in a world where there is a muddled gospel that is declared. There is evangelism that takes place that people say it should be primarily about your experience and about your personal feelings. That's not clear. 
And that's not the Gospel. There are people that make a big deal about the Gospel's need to bring earthly prosperity and riches and blessing and health and wealth. That's not a muddled Gospel. That's a false Gospel. There is a movement that is going on that says that we ought to do everything we can to try to present the Gospel in a way where it'll give people a quick fix and whether you have to use high-pressure tactics or manipulation or emotional ploys, do whatever you can to get people down the aisle and that's not clear either. And so Paul says it's important that it's communicated clearly. And while you were praying for me that I would communicate the Gospel clearly, he then goes in verse 5 and says, and this is how I want you to behave with one another and with people who are outside the church. Verse 5, be wise in the way that you speak to outsiders. Who are outsiders? People that aren't Christian. I don't know where any sect in Christendom ever got the idea that the role of the church was not to be in the world. You are to be in the world, obviously, but not of the world. How in the world are you going to be a witness if you're never around anybody who's lost? And so he's saying you need to look for those opportunities and look for those people and share with those people, and that needs to be absolutely a part of your day. You need to make the most of every opportunity, and you need to be wise in the way you speak to outsiders. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, I tell you this, preacher, and most time when it's prefaced like that, get ready. I'll tell you this. I said, okay. He said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. And I walked off and I thought about that for just a moment. Most people want to see a sermon. They want to see it lived out. And I want to just tell you a lot of you, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so proud of you. You mess up just like I do. But you are living, walking, talking sermons. You are being salt and light. You are acting in ways and people are experiencing Jesus through you because it's not just about communicating a sermon from a pulpit. It is also about living that out. And so that's what Paul is talking about and being wise in the way you act towards outsiders and then making the most of every opportunity. How many of you can't believe that it's already Christmas again? It's ridiculous. Every time you turn around, it's like another year, another year, another season, another birthday, and it's happening quicker and quicker and quicker. And I didn't believe this, and you don't believe it now. I don't even know why I'm taking part of this sermon to tell you this, because you're not going to believe it. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Everybody tells you this. They're like, enjoy it because life's going to fly by. It absolutely flies by. People told me, well, time flies when you're having fun. It flies by when you're not having fun. It's on the move all the time. You've got 1,440 minutes every day. And do you know it doesn't matter who you are, you've got 1,440 minutes a day. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what continent you live on. You've got 1,440 minutes a day. And people always say, well, I'm just trying to save time. You can't save time. 
And the reason you can't save time, you remember Israel when they were in the wilderness and they tried to take the manna and when they tried to save it for the next day, what happened to the manna? It was rotted and spoiled. What you have to do is quit trying to save time and start using time, recognizing that the moment I just spent telling you that, I'll never get it back. The moment you're spending listening to this sermon, you'll never get it back. That's why some of you are probably thinking, I need to get out of here. But we don't get it back. And so because we don't get it back, we've got to figure out how we're supposed to use that time. What does that look like? We can't store it, but if we make the most of every opportunity, we're talking about specifically when it comes to the gospel. I was rocked when I heard this statistic not, not long ago. 67% of unchurched people would be willing to attend church if they were invited by a Christian friend. Let me just share that with you again. 67% of unchurched people would be willing to go to church if you invited them. That's, that's amazing to me. So the fields are ripe, and sometimes we think, oh, nobody wants to come to church. Ask them. Talk to them about the Lord. People want to talk about themselves. They want to talk about their families. They even want to talk about what they believe. And so we're to make the most of these opportunities. And as we make the most of these opportunities, verse 6, it says we should let our conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When it's speaking here of these conversations, it's not talking about preaching. Paul's already asked them to pray for him as he spoke or as he preached. This is talking about day-to-day, in-and-out conversations that you have with family, friends, people you work with. This is specifically about what it looks like to have a conversation, and it is to have grace. When Paul uses the word grace, Paul loves the word grace. We see it over and over and over again. Here, it simply means that it ought to be spiritual, wholesome, kind, sensitive, gentle, truthful, thoughtful, loving, that that's what ought to characterize the conversation. But then he uses a phrase that I find interesting. How should your conversation be seasoned? It should be seasoned with... Good Southerners ought to understand this. That there are some of you that have gone on these no-salt diets. I do not want to eat lunch with you. There are some foods that if they do not have salt on them, I do not care to eat them ever again. I'm just being honest with you. I don't even want french fries that don't have salt on them. I'm never eating a turnip green that doesn't have salt on it. Period. End of story. Salt is 2,000 years later. It still has a lot of the effect that it had then. When you cook bacon, it is cured in what? Salt. It was more important things. They didn't have refrigerators. So salt had a, a purifying agent in a way that it could keep meat for a long period of time without it being able to be refrigerated. So as a purifying agent, he's saying that our speech should act like a purifier from the filth in the world that we hear. In other words, when we engage in conversation, it shouldn't escalate the filth of the conversation. That means that, I mean, I'm just going to shoot you straight. If you're just morally nasty you ought to quit if you cuss all the time that shouldn't be a part of your life i'm not telling you that if you ever slip 
that that means that you're immediately going to hell. But I'm saying that if in everyday casual conversation, your mouth is filthy, that won't do. You, you can't do that and, and then also be an agent of Christ, a representative of Christ. And so he says it needs to be seasoned with salt. So salt purifies, but salt does something beside purify, and we've already alluded to that. It makes stuff taste better. It makes everything taste better. We got a roast in the crock pot last night. My wife says, last night, do you mind seasoning the roast and searing it before we put it in the crock pot? I said, I'd be happy to do that. And let me tell you what, it's got some salt on it. And it's going to be good. Salt adds a little flavor, right? So it's not only a purifying effect, but here's what I think you need to hear. When you talk about Jesus, it ought not be boring. It ought to add a little flavor to the conversation. How is it that we can talk about everything else and seem interested and, and engaged and excited? And, and, and right now, deer hunting, I mean, we live in, a, in a, a part of the area where it's almost a religion right here. We're in the middle of about to be in the college playoff right now. We're in the end of the NFL season and people are making playoffs. We're in the shopping season right now. And I can take any of those conversations and a variety of others, even when I just talked about turnip greens and roast. A lot of you are thinking you could go off on a 20-minute kind of tangent about those things. All I'm saying is that when I talk about my Savior, if I can talk about deer hunting and it not be dull, and I can talk about fishing and it not be dull, and you can talk about shopping and it not be dull, and we can talk about cooking and it not be dull, I ought to be able to talk about Jesus and not be boring. Right? That's what he's talking about. That's what, that's what salt does. So that we would know how to respond, it says, to each person, or how, know how to answer everyone, saying the right thing at the right time. What we know is that the Bible teaches us that our words are important. It's estimated that a talkative person can speak up to or around 30,000 words a day. That's a lot. That's a lot. But the Bible tells us that with that, there are some admonitions that we need to hear. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 21, 23, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Psalm 141, verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the doors of my lips. The Bible's clear. The, the, the opportunity that we've been given for speech, that we have been given a holy weapon, and it can be used incredibly for good or it can be used incredibly for evil, right? So either it is in our prayer life that we're engaging with our Lord in devotion, engaging with our Lord in everyday conversation, or we're not. And in the way that we set our minds and set our hearts and set our mouth towards the opportunity for conversation in the world that we've been given, absolutely there is a call on our life to season it with salt. There's a call on our life to be wise in the way we speak to outsiders. There's a call on your life to make the most of every opportunity. Every one of those 1,440 minutes a day, they're a gift. We used to have a gentleman that went to church here who's passed away years ago. 
and I loved it when he would pray because he would get up in his pulpit and he'd shout to the Lord. He'd say, thank you for waking me up this morning. And you know what? He didn't have to do that, but he gave me this day and he gave you this day because I'm looking at you. You're here. I want to make the most of it. And the way you make the most of it isn't to spend all the money that you can spend. It isn't enjoy yourself the most you can enjoy yourself. If you want to know how to make the most of this day and every other day that the Lord gives you, it is that you would bring honor and glory to the Lord, that you'd make the most of every opportunity to not only talk to him, but to be a part of conversations that are all around you. So I'm asking you, we've got exactly a week and a day before Christmas. Can you think of a better time to really examine your prayer life? Can you think of a better time to really examine your opportunities and the conversations that you have? Friends, I'm telling you, the Lord is calling and convicting. And so I hope today, maybe it is that, that you're looking at your own life and you're saying, you know, I heard a verse you said, Larry, and you said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Don't worry about trying to clean up your mouth if your heart is decayed before the Lord. If you've never given your heart to Christ, there's no sense in washing the outside of the cup if the inside of the cup's disgusting. Let Jesus purify your inner life and come to him for salvation. You say, look, that, that's a tall order. You're talking about praying and conversations. I need help with that. I do too. That's why you ought to join this church this morning. You need people to walk alongside you and encourage you. We can't do it alone. We were never meant to do it alone. Come and be a part of what God's doing at First Baptist Summit. Or maybe today you're a believer. Maybe you're already a part of this church, but you've just realized today there's some things in my prayer life that need to be stepped up. There's some things in my conversational life that needs to be stepped up. I'm not making the most of every opportunity. There's some people in my life I need to be a little wiser around. And maybe it is that just because you've heard that today, you would recognize the Bible has been brought before you today so that you'd examine yourself and that you'd be honest with yourself and honest with the Lord. So today I'm asking you, we're going to sing in just a moment a hymn that most of you know by heart. I surrender all. That's a tough thing to do. It's a tough prayer to make. And right now we're asking that the Lord would help us in our holy communication to surrender it all to him and the way we speak to him and to surrender it all to him and the way we speak to the people that are in our lives.